Is Trump the mobster in chief? Will the November election be decided in the streets? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. I have little doubt that some of you now listening have been to protest demonstrations where one of the enthusiastic crowd chants was, this is what democracy looks like. The Trumpists call that a mob. Is it a mob? It really depends on one's point of view. As the title of this show indicates, I rather like democracy. That means many things, not the least of which is that in a democracy, in theory anyway, the people rule. But what about when the proverbial shoe is on the other foot? Groups of angry, hate-filled, and well-armed, mainly white males, threatening to, as Trump urged, liberate state and municipal governments that are not to the liking of these, uh, perhaps, mobs. Are they a militia as enshrined in the history of the American War of Independence? What about such things as lynch mobs? No doubt the people who participate in such things believe they are carrying out justice when the legally established, armed, alleged protectors of justice fail to do justice. And the question about mob rule comes into higher relief the closer we get to the upcoming election. Already large groups of angry white men have been roaming our streets with giant Trump flags. Their intent is not to win votes for the president, but to simply intimidate they have mapped out liberal enclaves, and one imagines intend to disrupt, intimidate, and threaten people who they feel are standing in the way of the re-election of Donald Trump. The question we'll discuss on today's show is, will the November election be decided in the streets? And is Donald Trump really the mobster-in-chief? Our guest today is John Pfeffer, co-director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. He's a Tom Dispatch regular, the author of the dystopian novel Splinterlands. His latest novel is Frostlands, a Dispatch Books original and book two of his Splinterlands series. John Pfeffer, thanks so much for being with us uh, again on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you for having me on the show. We're going to get into the definition of the word mob. That's what's at question. Trump's re-election campaign has created and manipulated fear. Of course, they intend to use fear of losing whites-only suburbs to dark-skinned people, supposedly invading our country. There have been ads depicting riots in places like Portland, Oregon, and Seattle, Washington, Never mind that the frightening scenes depicted may or may not be location-specific. And as fear always does, these ads have been effective. Otherwise, decent people, not of the right or left, are afraid of mobs taking over our streets, smashing things and setting fires. Of course, as it turns out, the real violence came exclusively from far right-wing infiltrators posing as leftists. As with so many cases throughout American history, when people feel justice is not being done by the authorities, yes, people do come out in the streets, often expressing anger. We know what that looks like. Trump calls the Black Lives Matter protest riots by mobs. Is it in the eye of the beholder who's a mob and who's a legally protected protester? No doubt the British uh, rulers supporting aristocracy in the colonies saw the rebellious people as an unruly mob. In fact, the Americans demanding the rich also be taxed for paying for the War of Independence at the Shays and Whiskey Rebellions 
have been featured in a book by Woody Holton with the title Unruly Americans. It did get messy. There were mobs. So it's nothing really new, but I don't know. Since the legal authority to use violence and force is restricted to the police or military, what if, what happens, John, if the official branches are unable to mete out justice? Can you cite some examples where people saw that justice wasn't being done and took the law into their own hands? I mean, I, you know, I can think of in the Great Depression, uh, when landlords had evicted tenants, others, their neighbors, grouped together to move them back in. They were acting illegally, too. Were those not mobs? So what are some examples where people saw that justice wasn't being done and took the law into their own hands, maybe for the good? Well, it, it, that's a tough question. I mean, let's take a look at the civil rights movement, for instance. Um, obviously, Southern whites saw the peaceful protests and demonstrations of African Americans uh, as mobs. Uh, they they were very frightened by uh, the organization of African Americans, and for many of uh, for many white uh, whites in the South, it evoked memories of slave rebellions of of earlier times. But the African Americans who gathered during the civil rights era were not actually asking or demanding that uh, they take the law into their own hands. And in fact, they were arguing that uh, that the federal government and the state government and the uh, local police should actually abide by the law. And the law, as was laid out in the Constitution. Um, which you know gave African Americans the right to vote, uh, laid out in a variety of court cases uh, and in local laws dating back to the Reconstruction era, which enfranchised uh, African Americans. So, from the African American protesters' point of view, uh, they were not vigilantes saying that you know the, they must take the law into their own hands. They were appealing to the uh, officials. Uh, law enforcement officials, state officials, federal officials to abide by the by the laws on the books. Uh, so I think that mm. that's a major yeah. you know, distinction between uh, between vigilantes and protesters. Well, it makes me think about the old Boston Tea Party. Uh, there was a law, you know, the the stamp tax, and there was kind of a group of vigilantes, I guess. But and yet they're they're seen as heroes because, it, at least to their minds, the law was not fair. The law has to be mm-hmm. uh, uh, addressed and taken on. Your response to that? Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a different situation. Uh, obviously, revolution is, is very different from uh, peaceful protesters gathering on the streets, you know, arguing that the law should be upheld rather than, um, uh, rather than overturned. In a revolutionary situation, yes, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, people who argue that the current system and all of its laws are unjust and needs to be overthrown. Um, that is a categorically different situation. Um, when revolutions are successful, as the American Revolution was, they become enshrined in the history of a country and upheld as, you know, the the single necessary break, if you will, the original sin <laughs> that's necessary to establish a, a free and fair democracy. 
but there have been, you know, plenty of revolutionary stirrings in the United States after the revolution, after the uh, American Revolution, that were not seen so charitably uh, mm. because they were not against the British, but they were against the new uh, American federal state. Uh, and so, obviously, you have uh, a reversal of the situation once the the initial revolutionary precedent has been established. Oh, interesting. I think back to uh, <laughs> uh, Lenin's time, not John Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, <laughs> who uh, the, the revolution kept going. It kept going and going and going. And, uh, you know, people, it wasn't good enough. So uh, it got, a lot of people died, quite frankly, and there was a lot of destruction. You know, it kept, uh, uh, people were labeled, oh, not uh, revolutionary enough, you know, not officially communist enough. And uh, it things can get out of hand uh, with that, but uh, they haven't in the United States. And I, I can't help but think that one of the reasons those ads by the Trump team are effective is because they bring up fear of revolution, of actual revolution. And there have been people on the left who have called for revolution. So there's that fear of revolution that this. And I talked to somebody yesterday who was saying, well, their protests are one thing, but looting and burning are something else entirely. It's uh, people are afraid of mobs, aren't they? Uh, definitely. People are afraid of mobs. I mean, obviously, people who have things, uh, mm -hmm. possessions, businesses, etc., mm -hmm. that could be um, expropriated or harmed mm -hmm. uh, during some uh, protests or certainly uh, in a revolutionary situation are very worried about mob violence. Sure. Um, but for, for people who have you know, historically not possessed uh, the wealth of the country, uh, mob violence is something very different. It expresses an anger at being dispossessed, uh, not just them, but their parents, their grandparents, entire generations going back many, many centuries. Uh, I'm not saying that you know one can uh, put that kind of mob violence in the same category, looting and uh, destruction mm -hmm. of businesses. I, I would not put that in the same category as peaceful protests. Um, but I certainly would uh, argue that that kind of mob violence that we saw, um, particularly the looting, in conjunction with the uh, Black Lives Matter demonstrations, um, expresses you know the the kind of historic injustices uh, that African Americans, yes. in particular in this country, have experienced. No question about that. And we all know the media, the mainstream media especially, uh, if it's not action, if it's not theater, they're not going to cover it. And, you know, things like flames and breaking into things, that gets covered. And, you know, Martin Luther King talked about where peaceful protest is not uh, uh, able to do its thing, then people do turn to revolution. JFK even talked about that as well. And I think that's what a lot of people are afraid of. And the term mobster, you know, when I think of the term mobster, I think of like Al Capone, stuff like that. It's usually reserved for crime bosses. Uh, the title of your article is The Mobster in Chief. It does often seem, from my experience here on the ground, uh, in just one of the 50 states, that the Trump organization, frankly, is quite thuggish. 
Do Trump's followers not regularly re rely on intimidation? And, and what about intimidation as kind of a, a, a traditional uh, method for what most people would think of as mobs? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important to distinguish between organized crime and unorganized crime. Uh, true. Uh, the Trump, the Trump organization has uh, very often functioned like a, a crime syndicate. Uh, in other words, it has um, used violence and intimidation. Uh, it has used graft, manipulation of tax system, all very similar to what organized crime syndicates have, uh, the tactics and techniques of organized crime syndicates in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Um, and uh, one could argue, though that wasn't exactly the argument of my article, right. that the Republican Party in some sense has been turned into a, a criminal syndicate uh, that enriches its patrons, um, that also relies on uh, you know, the, the suppression of democracy. Um, but uh, what I was looking at in, in my sure. article was really more a sense of unorganized crime. In other words, the um, the kind of sporadic uh, and, um, though unfortunately frequent, uh, kind of uprisings of mobs, uh, predominantly of white uh, males throughout American history, that have uh, visited violence upon, for the most part, minorities. Mm. Um, and, and they've done so... Uh, in some cases, it's been organized. I don't, I don't want to suggest it's completely unorganized. I mean, obviously, the Ku Klux Klan yeah. is an organization, um, and there have been other far-right and white nationalist organizations. But um, I, I was more interested in how mobs have kind of almost uh, spontaneously emerged uh, throughout American history mm. and during the Trump era making very similar arguments that law enforcement, that uh, government agencies have not uh, acted lawfully um, and that they must uh, take the law uh -huh. into their own hands. And, and, and here they're not arguing that, you know, like, say, civil rights demonstrators, that, uh, that these agencies should, um, you know, reform themselves and, and, uh, you know, and, actually abide by the letter of the law or the spirit of the law. Um, in other words, the civil rights protesters are pointing to a discrepancy between the activities of law enforcement and the actual rules that supposedly govern those activities. Uh, rather, these white mobs are saying, no, forget about you know these, the police, forget about the federal government. We can't really trust them any longer. Right. Um, and some of their rules and regulations are frankly unacceptable yes. um, because they, they privilege uh, minorities uh, in, in terms of you know, leveling the playing field. And so we, uh, the mob, must take the law into our own hands and enforce our own brand of justice and what, what might be called rough justice. Yes. In American history has been called frontier justice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, frontier justice. I'm glad I wasn't around for that. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is John Pfeffer. 
uh, co-director of foreign policy and focus at the Institute for Policy Studies, who's written a new article on Tom Dispatch titled uh, The Mobster-in-Chief, Will the November Election Be Decided in the Streets? And as you talk about justice, it does seem like there are very clear distinctions between two systems of justice in these currently United States that uh, uh, white people with money who can afford good lawyers, uh, or expensive lawyers anyway, uh, get one system of justice, and there's a whole different system of justice for other people, people who have darker skin. And what can people do that about that? You know, people who feel like, wait a minute, this isn't justice. I mean, look at the Breonna Taylor case. So many other cases that uh, uh, people of color can see that justice is not being done. So taking to the streets seems like uh, one method, and and there's kind of a a history for that. Your thoughts, John? Yes, uh, there is a history for that. And uh, but let's let's imagine that uh, protesters this summer who were protesting, you know, the police violence and kind of systemic racism and and law enforcement. Let's imagine that they behaved uh, as, say, white mobs had done uh, throughout American history. Um, If they had done, if they had kind of followed their their, uh, historical predecessors, they wouldn't just have demanded uh, action from the state. They wouldn't just have complained about the situation. They wouldn't have just held up the examples of racial injustice. Uh, They would have gone to the homes of the police uh, that were um, identified Mm -hmm. as the perpetrators, and they would have pulled them out of their houses. They would have taken them to fields uh, where they would have strung ropes up onto trees, and they would have hung them. Uh, or set them on fire or um, both. and let them die, or both. Uh, that is uh, the distinction between uh, the protesters this summer and the way white lynch mobs have behaved in the past. What can be done um, is you know, the, the, the question you have about kind of racial injustice and that permeates our, um, our legal system. And that, that's an ongoing problem. I mean, if you're a lawyer, you say, well, you know, we're, we are striving for a more perfect union. I mean, that's what the Constitution is, is arguing, that we didn't start with a perfect democracy, but we set, up, we set up mechanisms by which we can, you know, gradually improve our democracy by expanding the, the, the franchise, bringing more people uh, or uh, allowing more people to vote. Um, you know, identifying mechanisms that uh, that uh, improve equality on the ground, uh, equality of opportunity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, a lawyer would identify a variety of precedent-making cases that have improved the law enforcement, right. um, uh, the legal system more generally. Um, if you were an institutionalist, you would say, well, you know, look at look at what has happened in, in law enforcement agencies. They used to be exclusively white. Um, then they became the kind of province of of new immigrant communities, Italians, Irish, um, who saw law enforcement as a kind of alternative path to success. But still, you know, in the early to middle 20th century, almost exclusively white. But what has changed since the 1960s 
has been a kind of transformation of the professions here in the United States, uh, and that includes law enforcement. So today, law enforcement better reflects the demographic makeup of the United States. You have, in fact, slightly more African-Americans as police officers than their share in the population as a whole. That doesn't mean that that racism has been eliminated in the institution. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are still uh, police departments that are exclusively white, and there are police departments where there are African-Americans, Latino police officers that still... uh, betray systemic yes. racism. Um, but the institutionalist would say, well, you know, we're, we're working on that within the institution of, of law enforcement and, and gradually we'll have uh, a better uh, system. And then the third category would be those who say, look, you know, um, we need a more democratized uh, law enforcement system in this country. In other words, for us to really root out systemic racism, we have to have far greater oversight uh, civilian oversight of law enforcement. Uh, we have to make law enforcement far more accountable to the communities that they serve. Uh, we have to make the funding of, uh, of the, the agencies contingent on their um, ob- observation of, uh, of the, uh, the rules and regulations established both federally and at state level, et cetera, et cetera. So I think those are kind of three different approaches, the legal, the institutional, mm-hmm. and the, the democratic approaches to, to reforming law enforcement. Of course, I like the democratic approach, and I'm, I think that's uh, something to look into as part of perfecting the union, improving the union all the time. Your article cites a January 2020 survey by political scientist Larry Bartels, which goes to explain much of the attraction to Trump's mobster style. Please tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, this is a really kind of remarkable um, survey of uh, Republicans that political scientist Larry Bartels conducted in in January of this year. And uh, basically, it, it came to two, I think, important uh, conclusions, uh, or two findings, rather. Uh, And one, he says that most Republicans, and this is a majority of of Republicans, believe that the traditional American way of life is disappearing so fast that we may have to use force to save it. May have to use force to save it. I mean, that's that's actually quite remarkable uh, finding. This isn't using force to kind of promote democracy overseas through war and intervention. This is use of force domestically uh, to um, to preserve a traditional American way of life. Now, what does traditional way of American life mean? Sure. Well, you know, I mean, given the fact that uh, large numbers of uh, Clear, a, a, a overwhelming majority of Republicans these days are white. Uh, frankly, traditional American way of life is is kind of a code word here for maintaining white dominance in, in American society. Uh, it means other things as well, of course. You know, uh, traditional gender roles, uh, certain uh, attitudes towards the workplace, uh, less uh, no, uh, less uh, or fewer taxes, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, the other the other kind of major finding: more than forty percent agree that a time will come when patriotic Americans have to take the law into their own hands. Now, again, this is this is remarkable. The Republican Party 
had billed itself for, for decades uh, as the law and order party. Um, and here, 40%, four out of 10 Republicans have basically given up on that idea and have sided with an entirely different view of justice in which, well, frankly, uh, patriotic Americans, uh, self-defined, uh, will have to take the law into their own hands. They cannot rely on the police department. They cannot rely on the military. They cannot rely on the federal or state government. They can only rely on themselves. So, you know, this is uh, this is a transformation of the Republican Party in a direction I think that Trump has encouraged, though he's not the only one, obviously, uh, in a in a uh, white nationalist and vigilante direction. I mean, and, you know, the the other conclusion in, in his surveys was that, you know, the that a lot of this was founded on ethnic antagonism. This mm. wasn't, you know, a, a perception that other white people, you know, were, were violating the law. Uh, it wasn't a perception that, say, young people were violating the law. Right. Um, it was a perception that non-whites were uh, were somehow uh, not patriotic and were not adhering to uh, to, to the uh, rule of law. And this, you know, Bartels concludes, uh, has really uh, negatively impacted uh, Republican commitment to democracy. Boy, I guess so. And and as you were talking, I was, I was thinking about how a lot of the the same people who were drawn into this, who support this. I can see why Trump would uh, want to keep statues to Confederate uh, uh, military people up because that's part of the values of, of white nationalist uh, control of everything. Fascinating. There is a consistency here. It's kind of an ugly consistency, but there is. That if that control is threatened, take the law into their own hands. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard the allegation that uh, Joseph Goebbels, uh, Hitler's propagandist, reportedly advised his boss, accused the other side of that which you are guilty. It's not clear that he said that, but it makes sense. And as you write, the Trumpists uh, are, quote, desperately trying to flip the script by using fear of their mobs and Antifa terrorists to drive its base to the polls. Are there such mobs? What What is the reality of any Marxist mobs uh, uh, that we've seen on our streets? Well, it's pretty amusing these days to hear, you know, uh, Republicans, Trump followers uh, talk about Marxist mobs, because it was only a few years ago that, you know, that they themselves admitted that the, the only Marxists that were still functioning were in the university. <laughs> so the one can't think of uh, perhaps a, a, a starker contrast between Marxists in the ivory tower, and then suddenly they have become Marxist mobs. But, and I'm sure that there are, you know, Marxists, the few Marxists in the United States would love to be able to, to yeah. <laughs> congregate as a mob um, if they could somehow, you know, uh, overcome their, their doctrinal disagreement yeah, that'll happen. <laughs> to come together on the street. <laughs> Um, the, the Antifa is a little different. I mean, you know, the, in the sense that anti, this anti-fascist, um, uh, rubric is, is pretty broad, uh, in the sense that it can, it can stretch, it can include lots of different, 
different people and different po- political persuasions. But in practice, Antifa has been a rather small uh, segment of, um, say, the anarchist or uh, environmental uh, or uh, peace protests that have taken place, you know, basically since the late 1990s. And the Antifa have, have often, in their kind of black box um, uh, version, have uh, have been frustrated with, you know, just walking on the streets and chanting and, you know, having, well, not a whole lot of impact. I mean, look, we had the largest demonstrations in the world before the Iraq war, and it didn't stop the Iraq war. And we had plenty of demonstrations, you know, uh, to to stop um, climate change, and yeah. governments have largely ignored that. Yes. So there's an understandable frustration uh, at the what seems to be the impotency of traditional uh, protest techniques. And so the anti- the black box and some Antifa uh, protesters have, as you said earlier, recognized that the media will pay attention to uh, more dramatic acts, if you will. Uh, and so they have kind of created a theater of spectacle on, on the streets yes. by using bricks and uh, breaking windows. And, you know, that has definitely attracted greater attention. Yes. Does it represent a significant force? No, uh, not even on the left. And there's plenty of uh, people on the left that are incredibly upset uh, yes. at the kind of what they perceived as the hijacking of peaceful protest. Um, has it resulted in the loss of life? No. I mean, uh, Antifa has been almost uh, religious in its focus on destruction of property. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's, these are not you know, say the, the weather underground right. of the, the late 1960s, making bombs in, you know, townhouses in Manhattan or robbing banks. I mean, this is, right. these folks are, have been focused again, exclusively on, on property. So, uh, whereas the mobs on the right, you know, the white nationalists, the accelerationists, yeah. you know, that, the Adam Waffen division, the neo-Nazis, et cetera, um, have not really been interested in property at all for the most part and have focused almost exclusively on uh, on you know threatening people intimidating people and in some cases actually killing people mm. that's true and and taking the law into their own hands as a patriotic necessity it makes me think of uh, 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse who is being praised he went in uh, to I forget which demonstration I think it was Kenosha, uh, who yeah. shot people. He killed people. Actually, went in, and he's being seen as a hero. That is amazing to me for this formerly law and order uh, crowd. It's just uh, talk about flipping uh, uh, history and and saying about the other what is true about yourself. It's it's just amazing. And you talk about Marxists. There may be maybe a thousand in the whole country. I don't know. And I guess they're all <laughs> universities. <laughs> Uh Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is John Pfeffer with Foreign Policy in Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. He's written an article in Tom Dispatch titled The Mobster-in-Chief, Will the November Election Be Decided in the Streets? We're talking about mobs. And you say uh, uh, the mob has occupied an unusually prominent place in our history because Americans have cultivated a unique hostility toward the state and its institutions that goes back to early years of the republic, end of quote. And they occasionally explode into violence. 
I, we talked a little bit about some of the history peaking, taking the law into their own hands, especially as it relates to white supremacists. Are there other examples that you th- think would be uh, revelatory? We think about, um, you know, I, I wrote another uh, article with a provocative title called The Problem of Surplus White Men. And uh, it basically looked at the, the challenges that governments, countries have faced for hundreds of years when they have a lot of young men predominantly, who uh, are basically economically dispossessed. Uh, The law of primogeniture in Europe basically concentrated the inheritance of a family into the hands of the eldest son. And so you had a number of other sons who basically had no money uh, and no prospects or few prospects. What happened to those uh, young men? I mean, they were uh, often a uh, threat to the society because you know, they they were given to, to drink or to crime or to revolution. And the countries often found kind of safety valves, uh, release for uh, this, these, this generation of young men by sending them to other countries. Uh, this is what the kind of colonial solution, mm-hmm. um, sending, you know, your, your folks to America, for instance, that's what the British did with their r- religious and political dissenters, or they sent their criminals to Australia. Mm-hmm. Other colonial powers, you know, sent their, their uh, young men to make their fortune in the new world or over in uh, Asia. <laughs> Here in the United States, I mean, we didn't have an empire, at least not, not officially. Right. Yes. So, uh, so, you know, we had a good hundred years or so in which uh, we had lots of uh, white men who uh, were basically uh, saw their progression in society blocked in some way. But we had a release uh, uh, right. or safety valve as well, and that is we sent them west. Right. Go, go west, young man. Yes. And uh, in the process of going west, uh, of course, you know, if if we're talking about Donald Trump's history book, the <laughs> conquest of the west was a was a triumphant, you know, uh, chapter in American history. Right. It showed American enterprise and courage and. Uh, but, you know, the, the flip side of that, the other story to the conquest of the West is the displacement of yes. all the folks who were there, yes. uh, the indigenous folks, as well as, you know, kind of those Latinos who, who were living, Mexican, uh, Chileans, uh, folks from throughout the Americas uh, lived throughout what is now Western United States. Now, uh, obviously, the official instruments of the U.S. government were critical in this displacement, obviously. Andrew Jackson, a great hero of Donald Trump, was uh, made his name to a certain extent by uh, displacing the Cherokees and sending them down the the Trail of Tears. Um, And the U.S. Army, of course, Custer and others also made their names, uh, infamously in Custer's Mm -hmm. case, uh, by by fighting uh, Native Americans and and, uh, sending them packing. But uh, it was also a case of frontier justice uh, Mm. that displaced Native Americans, especially in California. And, you know, California becomes a state in the mid-19th century, roughly around the time the gold is discovered. (laughs) And settlers went out to, to make their fortune in California, only to discover that a lot of the gold lay on 
land that was owned or at least occupied by other people. Uh, and so throughout the 1850s, you have an extraordinary number of, uh, of basically lynch mobs yes. going up and down the, the, the state, killing Native Americans in, in huge numbers. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, one or two or three. We're talking about massacres of, of hundreds of people. Um, and so there you have uh, perhaps the most dramatic and, and genocidal yeah. expression of mob violence in American history. Of course, uh, it was the, one thing leads to another oftentimes. And I think about uh, Woodrow Wilson, who I used to think of as liberal. Ha! Huh. The immigrants, hyphenated Americans, were the other, that there wasn't enough uh, uh, Lebensraum as the Germans would say, the, the Nazis, that uh, we had to have a place for white men. There's got to be white men dominating things. And these uh, others, immigrants, there were lynch mobs. Absolutely, there were lynchings going on. And there was great fear among uh, immigrants uh, in the uh, you know, 1920s. Uh, it was, it's a long tradition of these mobs saying, you know, we need to take the law into our own hands because this government is you know, uh, allowing immigrants in. And certainly Trump has done that as well. Uh, and obviously, one thing Trump is has been very good at is being dominating the headlines. He needs to dominate all the time. He's an entertainer who's very good at playing to the audience. As you write, the president consistently portrays himself as a populist leader who must battle the elite and its deep state. He cites anarchy and chaos in Democrat-run cities. In what real ways does that place him at the head of the mobs? Well, there's an interesting, you, know, you, you, you mentioned this, the, the interesting kind of um, source of, uh, of mob uh, mentality in the United States goes back to kind of its, our libertarian tradition, our, our suspicion of state institutions. Um, that's, I mean, it's it's not only a mentality; it's kind of ingrained in our in our very federal st structure. I mean, it's why we don't have a unified um, political structure. Why the power is distributed among the states? Why we have checks and balances in the federal government, et cetera? So, I mean, the libertarian spirit has some, you know, some uh, benign, shall we say, <laughs> uh, expressions politically, uh, but it also has some very malignant expressions and. Um, and you see, if we're just talking about kind of more contemporary history, you see that uh, really animate actors on the far right, uh, beginning certainly uh, with the Clinton administration, a perception that the Clinton administration is, a, is almost an alien occupation of the federal government, that the federal government is, has been um, taken over by uh, unacceptably tolerant liberals, um, and uh, and and they also control the, the state power and obviously the violence associated with state power, and so the a, a kind of new narrative emerges on the far right that the federal government is is really a, an, an unacceptable imposition on. On individual Americans and and groups of Americans, so, so you know the uh, the FBI's um, bombing of the Branch Davidian compound, the 
the yeah. assaults on, uh, um, you know, uh, survivalists out in the far west and Pacific Northwest. Um, this is uh, also kind of um, sustained by the militia movement as that, that grows in particular uh, after the, uh, the inauguration of Barack Obama, um, a, a militia movement that's devoted in part to protecting the borders of the United States to prevent immigrants from coming in, but also um, clearly upset about the uh, derogation of uh, white privilege in this country. Mm. Donald Trump has kind of in, in, in several ways established his bona fides as, as the leader of, yep. of this kind of uh, anti-federal uh, approach. I mean, the irony, of course, is he's the president, and so he's the head of the federal system, but he has always kind of oh, asserted that he is lies somehow outside the federal system, that the federal system is, in fact, arrayed against him as, as a deep state. Right. But you can go back even, even earlier in Trump's political career uh, to see how he has cultivated this this uh, leadership position, if you will, and you know, I, I located as uh, back in in the late 1980s, in 1989, when he took out you know four full page ads in New York newspapers, saying that the Central Park Five, right. uh, the five young men who were accused of uh, raping a woman in Central Park, that they should uh, effectively be killed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he, he didn't say that directly. He said that New York should reinstate the death penalty and uh, they should do so as a result of, of crimes like uh, the one that took place in, in Central Park. Now, of course, uh, the Central Park Five, as many people know, having uh, read the newspaper and seen the recent documentary, uh, were released because they were innocent of yes. that crime, um, as ha were so many others uh, in American history accused of uh, crimes against white women in particular, uh, found out to be innocent, uh, you know, after the fact, but after the fact was often their lynching at the hands of white mobs. Uh, and But here, you know, Trump is, is you know, clearly putting himself in this historical trajectory of uh, of visiting the death penalty on um, on young people of color accused of uh, of raping uh, a white woman and he has not of course apologized <laughs> at any point uh, in since the uh, release of, of those young men so this is a this is a pattern um, that Trump has uh, established early on before he had even really any significant political ambitions. But once he, you know, becomes a kind of political actor, then it, it becomes necessary for him to, to uh, appeal in his mind to, uh, to this kind of, um, uh, if you will, anti-state uh, character in order to, to establish his, you know, his legitimacy hmm. among, uh, you know, the, the conservative whites and, and particularly white nationalists. And so, you know, he is he is, of course, running for head of state, but he is clearly anti-state in so many respects. He, he wants to cut taxes. He wants to cut government. He wants to eliminate government regulations. He wants to uh, even uh, remove American government's impact overseas, uh, for the most part, with a couple of exceptions. Um <laughs> There are lots of reasons that you know Trump is not, in point of fact, anti-state. I mean, obviously, he supports the state um, 
you know, uh, restricting women's right to choose or other, you know, he likes the fact that the state can redirect resources to rich people. Uh, he has no problem deploying the National Guard. I mean, there are lots of reasons why he is, in fact, in practice, not anti-state, but yeah. he styles himself as uh, as being against the federal state. And, and in, in essence, if he's not the head of the state, then what is he the head of exactly? Well, you know, by, you know, establishing his credentials as, as effectively a white nationalist, I argue he's, he's putting himself as a, at the head of, of a mob, not at the head of the state. And it seems to me in the 1930s in Germany, there was a guy who was very much against the state uh, who uh, had these organized rather violent mobs who himself became head of state and also brought a little bit of uh, a destruction and incredible misery to the people. And, uh, you know, they, they hate the comparisons, but when they're there, they're there. Of course, there are differences, but uh, it's, it's just fascinating. He can be against the state and head of the state and this so-called deep state. What a convenient uh, uh, enemy to, to go against. There is no deep state, of course, but it does uh, inspire and serve to legitimize right-wing mobs. And you talk about, uh, you know, different kinds of uh, justice, the justice that uh, Trump was favoring. He is very much against uh, education about American history. He wants just a patriotic education, he calls it, which obviously wouldn't include people like Emmett Till, you know, it sounds like his his take on the uh, Central Park Five was, you know, sort of backing up uh, the uh, uh, kind of justice <clears throat> that was meted out against young Emmett Till, who more people, I think, should know about. It's an important part of our history, and it's ugly. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about mobs. Is Trump really the mobster-in-chief? Our guest talking about this is John Pfeffer who is with the uh, Institute for Parin Foreign Policy Studies. And uh, his latest novel is Frostlands, a dispatch book's original and book two of his Splinterlands series. Uh, and your essay mentions Fox News. The views of right-wing mobs are pretty much in line with that legitimized propaganda outlet amazingly calling themselves news. Uh, the point made is that militias don't necessarily see themselves as far right. They have backup from the Fox News, which is very, very popular. As West Virginia University professor John Temple, whom you cite, observes, many seem to have joined the cause for social reasons, uh, reasons or because they liked guns or because they wanted to be part of something they saw as historic and grandiose. What does that say about where we are as a nation these days. John Temple was writing in the Washington Post, and he was trying to kind of debunk certain myths about uh, right-wing militias. And, and many of his points are, are quite accurate. Uh, they aren't uh, entirely white. I mean, you can find some African-American members of, of the, the far-right militias. Um, you can even find uh, members that are not who don't consider themselves uh, right-wing uh, in their perspective. Uh, and there are also kind of left-wing organizations that uh, are, are proud to be gun owners and to, to open carry yeah. weapons. Um, but uh, the, the fact of the matter is that 
you know, one of the, the things he says is that, um, you know, the many of these members of the far right militias, uh, he deems as not particularly ideological because they, they're simply echoing views that you would find in more kind of uh, centrist, uh, well, I can't, it's hard to call it centrist, yeah. but in more, uh, quote unquote, mainstream, yeah, or mainstream. established places like uh, like Fox News. And uh, and to that, I would say, well, you know, that that actually is more a reflection of how far the mainstream has moved to the right, how far, you know, government policy under Trump has moved to the right yeah. than, you know, how uh, benign perhaps mm. the, the views are of, of these uh, right wing militias. So that, for instance, on immigration questions, you know, what had been deemed beyond the pale prior to the uh, uh, the ascension of Donald Trump has become established government policy. And so therefore, you know, if, if you are simply uh, uh, reflecting those views, you're no longer on the fringe. You are now firmly part of the mainstream. Um, you know, it's a, it's a extraordinarily frightening development. In fact, when, uh, when politics has moved so um, resolutely in that direction and, you know, the, in in some sense, though, you know, and this is this is a terrible irony of this election. Ordinarily, immigration question would be front and center uh, in in this election. You know, mm-hmm. if we took coronavirus and the collapse of the economy off the agenda for the moment, immigration was you know a, a key element in Trump's victory in uh, in. 2016, and certainly in a number of key congressional uh, races as well. Uh, but immigration is largely off the agenda, not only because of the coronavirus. I mean, it was largely off the agenda prior to, to the outbreak of the virus because the administration had implemented its agenda. And uh, therefore, uh-huh. you know, white racists didn't see it as really all that important any longer to, taken care to, of. to rally around that issue. And, and that's a terrible terrible oh, facts you know that um that you know th- that our electorate this time around can seem to be less racist because it doesn't have to weigh in on the immigration question uh i suspect however that you know if trump were to lose then uh we uh, would almost immediately i mean once the co- covid crisis passes and mm. borders become a little bit more open then the immigration question will again come uh, front and center. And again, it will seem as though, you know, the, the press will say, oh, well, racism has suddenly reemerged you know, <laughs> in, in the American population. But it hasn't reemerged. It was there all the time. It just wasn't activated by, uh, by you know, the, the, the immigration question in particular being front and center of the national debate. Before we get back to the election and the dangers ahead, you talked about the the fact that some on the left, whatever left there is, I don't, but anyway, that's a different story, have called for defunding the police in light of so many killings of unarmed black people. You see some profound dangers in this rather reactive approach, defunding police. Please, I think it's important to share your concerns and suggestions regarding uh, police and the idea of defunding. The critiques of our uh, law enforcement system and legal system in this country by protesters this summer were spot on. You know, the the uh, there is systemic racism. There, it's not a question of Clearly. simply a couple of bad seeds. You know, this is a, a bad eggs. This is a 
This yeah. is a, a profound problem. The, the police department uh, lacks oversight. It's being heavily militarized through Pentagon um, transfers of yes. weaponry. Uh, there are any number of problems with our uh, police departments and with our, our legal justice system. However, um, we have to recognize that uh, legal uh, system and law enforcement are institutions that are bound by American laws. They're subject, at least to some degree, by oversight. There should be more, but they're bound by some, to some degree by, by oversight. Uh, they are subject to reform. They have been reformed. Um, not enough, but we can cite plenty of examples of, of reforms that have been significant. And that is something we can't say about mobs. Yes. Mobs are beyond reform. <laughs> They're yeah. beyond any oversight. They're beyond, they, they can be uh, challenged by police departments you know, when they commit crimes, but for the most part, they operate independently <laughs> and they are a, a major concern. And that's not just a major concern because we see what happens with the intimidation done by you know, white militias to reopen economies um, mm. or the intimidation of governors mm -hmm. uh, by, by those militias or the targeting of, uh, of people online, um, death threats and occasional killings by, uh, by people associated with, uh, again, the, the Boogaloo Boys or the Adam Waffen Division. Um, or lone, so-called lone wolves like Kyle Rittenhouse or, or shooters like uh, we've had in the last four years. Um, they're, they're not just a problem because of that. They're a problem because they tie into a history of white mob violence in this country. So they have uh, a tradition that they can draw on and uh, a kind of well of sympathy that they have uh, in the American, in a certain segment of the American population. Um, so that's why I, I'm concerned, you know, that, you know, we, we can't throw away police departments. Um, and we can't imagine that, you know, like civilian patrols or, or police free zones as, as occurred in, in Seattle briefly uh, are a solution. Um, not when we face, uh, two things. One, the, the threat of, of white, predominantly white mob violence, but also just the proliferation of guns in the society. We're not talking about the UK. We're not talking about Germany. We're talking about a country yeah. where there are 120 guns per 100 people. And the next country on the list in terms of gun ownership is about half that. And it is Yemen. I mean, a country that is in the middle of a civil war. So the, the notion somehow that uh, disarming the police mm -hmm. will you know, lead to a, a, a just society in this country is ridiculous, yeah. given the sheer number of weapons that are in circulation in this country. Yeah, I wish more people uh, could, could realize that. So just to, to close up here, you say the struggle this November is not just about Democrats versus Republicans. It's about the rule of law versus racist vigilantism. I really see Trump as, as you know, uh, an expression of this uh, racist vigilantism that has been a, a, a current in American history, a current that, as you point out, Trump would like to ignore in history books and pronouncements about um, key moments like the Civil War. Um, and, 
you know, it is a, a rear guard action, if you will, uh, on the part of not just a, a small minority of white nationalists. And, and I want to emphasize here that we're only talking about a few tens of thousands of people who identify as white nationalists uh, who would, say, actually show up on the street with guns in, in a call to action by the Ku Klux Klan or uh, the Boogaloo Boys or, or any formation like that. Um, what we're talking about is, is a much larger problem in which uh, we have a, a major political party, uh, as well as you know a, a significant portion of that party, as, as we talked about at the top of the hour with Bartel's survey, between 40 and 60 percent of the party actually supporting the use of force in support of, of the traditional American way of life. Um, so we're not just talking about kind of fringe elements. We're talking about uh, a, a large swath of conservative America embracing uh, vigilantism to uphold uh, effectively white privilege at a time of, of significant demographic shift in this country, as well as political change that has uh, gradually empowered uh, people of color uh, to so that they have equality of opportunity, mm. etc. Um, so this is a reactionary force uh, that you know is is making its 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 final stand, as it were. It's mm. it's Alamo. Uh, it, it's it's Custer's, you know, position on, in the prairie. Um, and so that that is you know that's one clear vision of of the future, which is a vision that goes not into the future, but yes frankly, straight back into the past, into yes, the yeah, past yeah. of America's you know, white mob uh, antecedents. On the other side of the, the balance sheet is rule of law. And we've seen you know, perhaps the most salient critiques of the Trump administration have been it, it, the critiques of its violations of the rule of law, um, whether it's uh, within Washington itself or trampling over the rights of journalists civil society activists, protesters around the country, its violations of democratic principles and its foreign policy, Trump's buddy-buddy relationships with dictators yeah. around the world. Um, this administration has contempt for the rule of law. It has used the Justice Department uh, for its own ends to suppress votes uh, in elections, to go after Trump's enemies. Whether the Democratic Party embodies the rule of law, there are plenty of examples of the Democratic Party violating the oh, rule yeah. of law as well. So I, I don't see the Democratic Party as the party of the rule of law. Rather, I see uh, a, a large number, a majority of Americans uh, saying that they uh, want to see rule of law reestablished in this country so that we have free and fair elections, yes. uh, that we can uh, expect legislation that is passed by a majority of people to be implemented, uh, that we uh, have racism and, and sexism expunged from our system as much as possible. Uh, this is, I think, the position of a majority of Americans but that, of course, will be borne out uh, in November. Thank you so much. Always fascinating to talk with you. John Pfeffer, co-director of Farm Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies. His uh, latest novel is Frostlands, part of uh, his Splinterlands series. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me back on the show.